You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces. Colonel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I know that a lot of people now know who you are uh, since you've been um, the spokesman, uh, especially since the, in, the start of this operation against Hamas uh, for the IDF. But could you could we begin by you providing our listeners with a, a little bit about who you are, your military career up to this point, and your current duty position? Well, currently I am uh, actually a private citizen uh, in reserves, and the uh, on the horrible morning of. Uh, uh, Saturday, I saw the um, you know the rockets being fired, uh, and the first minute I saw the clip, one of the clips of a Hamas white pickup truck inside Zderot, I understood that this was totally out of uh, out of the normal, and uh, that this would probably be. I didn't know then that we would go into war, but I said this is unprecedented. Never before have terrorists entered Israel so brazenly from uh, from Gaza and that there would be serious fighting. So I informed my friends at the spokesperson's unit that I am available. Um, I went and did a few interviews uh, dressed in plain clothes as just a former guy informing of the situation and providing commentary as the day unfolded, you know, in the numbers started to become a little bit apparent and the 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 magnitude of uh, the catastrophe became more uh, more understood um, i was then summoned by the unit and back at essentially what was my old and last assignment in the idf uh, for four years between 2017 and 2021 i was the international spokesperson at the rank of lieutenant colonel, and did that for four years. Before that, 20 years of uh, service in the IDF. Um, I started out, like most Israelis do, with uh, mandatory service at the age of 18. Started as a real fighter, not as a spokesperson. Uh, I fought, I was in an infantry unit that specialized in um, small, well, basically urban warfare, explosives, and uh, commando uh, operations uh, served in Lebanon as a soldier before 2000, before Israel withdrew, and then spent the better part of five years fighting inside the Gaza Strip against Hamas, the resistance committees, Islamic Jihad, and other terrorist organizations. As a first as a platoon commander, infantry, and then as a company commander. And uh, I mean, I we did operations into Gaza City, Khan Yunus, Rafah. Uh, we hunted tunnels along the Rafah border. We uh, fought against whatever the terrorists at the time had and uh, and did, as they were trying to kill Israelis in the communities inside the Gaza Strip, what we call the settlements of Gush Katif uh, and other enclaves. And um, I can say, looking back, that that experience of really being on the ground and fighting inside Gaza, sadly, is uh, very valuable for me today, uh, because I have first-hand experience of the area that we are now talking about. Um, I spent many years in the military, um, 
as you would call a career officer and uh, was very fortunate to have a very interesting service uh, both uh, in foreign relations doctrine uh, and i was also a liaison officer to un peacekeeping forces up north along the lebanese and the syrian border so i got to experience those borders as well and uh, just becoming before coming spokesperson i became the first israeli officer to be seconded to the un and uh, i served three years at the un headquarters in new york uh, really the belly of the beast uh, from an israeli perspective uh, where I was in the Office of Military Affairs and worked there as an intel analyst, which was hugely interesting and very insightful for me as an Israeli to uh, be inside the UN, see how decisions are made, how UN Security Council resolutions are drafted and adopted, how the countries uh, negotiate between themselves during during you know talks about resolutions and how reality on the ground is reflected in UN reporting, which is uh, an area all of its own. Um, and then, as I said, spokesperson for four years. Uh, during that time, I was responsible for about 60 IDF personnel, officers and soldiers, doing both social media, traditional media, as you know, the face and the voice of the IDF, and uh, head of the public diplomacy the international public diplomacy of the IDF. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's a very unique, um, what, what years did you say you were, you actually fought on the ground as an infantry company commander in Gaza? Um, up until, up until the disengagement. Uh, so I was company commander 2003 to 2005, did two assignments as a captain and a major inside the Gaza Strip with significant fighting, uh, both in the southern part around Rafah and also central area. There was an Israeli community called Kfar Darom and one called Netzarim. These are places that's perhaps more advanced. It's for people who you know, either live in Israel or are familiar with the terrain. Uh, and they were these kind of uh, isolated uh, locations, totally surrounded by uh, by Palestinian uh, either refugee camps or, or villages or cities, uh, and they were tough locations, and we we were tasked with defending them, and uh, we did that up until the Israeli government decided to disengage from the Gaza Strip. Got it. No, and I um uh, one I, I need to have you back on my podcast about that. As as you know, I have I've had the you know the honor of having. Um, General Tamir uh, about the uh, the Battle of Suez City and, and the Yom Kippur War. I've had um, the general who was one of the first members of your mom, the Battle of Janine. Uh, so I'd really love to have you back just talking about um, what that experience in, in Gaza during that period was. And my I should have started with this. My heart goes out to you and all the Israeli uh, people, uh, the IDF, the police, uh, especially southern Israel, where I, I I've had lunch in a hummus a hummus not hummus a hummus restaurant in Serdot. Serdot, yeah. I suppose you went to hummus and and trina, which used to be a you know that is the place to have hummus in in Serdot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I was escorted by the IDF history branch, and I actually I was in some of the southern outposts. Actually, I drove a D nine bulldozer, and unfortunately, some of those were the ones were viciously 
you know, taken over by on October 7th. So my heart goes out to all of you. Um, it really does. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it is a, it is a dark moment in, uh, in our history. It is a dark moment. And just, you know, from the get go, we are reeling from, uh, this, uh, this military failure, which we're going to investigate. We're going to get to the bottom of it and we're going to understand how any enemy was capable of uh, doing this and why we weren't able to prevent it. I know that's not the topic of your, of this uh, chapter, but you know, it has to be said since I'm here speaking on behalf of the military it is uh, we have a long process of first fighting and winning a war, and then we will investigate and learn and get better from it and hopefully share what we've learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot there. And I actually was a part of my own military's response to 9-11. I, I jumped in as a paratroop platoon leader into Northern Iraq in 2003, which I've gotten a few questions about your know, ideals about revenge and, and things like that, that aren't just people who haven't been in the military. That's not what militaries do, which leads to my first question, right? Um, that war is, war is hell, war is killing, war is destruction, but it's, it's bound by laws of war or what we call the, the laws of armed conflict. And that's what prevents savagery, right? That prevents barbar barbarism like we saw Hamas terrorists did on October 7th. I mean, there are rules to war even um, so that the world doesn't resort back to savagery and doing awful things to each other. Uh, so I wanted to cover those laws of war because I feel that the idea falls in. But for listeners, just a quick review, right? So one, this is a giant body of work. The laws of war actually means like a bunch of things, the customary law, Geneva Conventions, some treaties here, you know, things like that. But generally, there's what we consider the basic principles, right? That military action must be necessary, right? Uh, that's the necessity of the military action. They must distinguish between civilians and legitimate military targets, right? Non-combatants, combatants. Uh, they must be proportionate, which seems to be right now, I don't know why. I mean, I know why, but it, people just take this, the proportionality principle out of context. So it's not, it's not comparing civilian casualties on both sides, like, like some type of value, proportional value. It's, it's actually a, a law of war, which is when you take an action, you have to account for the expected civilian harm as compared to the concrete and direct military advantage that is expected to gain at the time of the attack, right? It's military action and a, a proportionality assessment. And it also means that you have to avoid, to the extent possible, incidental harm. Yeah, that's definitely a term that's being uh, battered around by people who don't have a clue what they're saying. Right. Uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity, and everybody is a self-appointed expert at uh, the law of armed conflict without ever serving in the military or actually studying it. And as you say, it is a body of work that has been established by the international community after the atrocities of the Second World War, including the Holocaust. And they are supposed to define how militaries fight. And I stress militaries because, you know, we're fighting non-state actors. We are fighting terrorists who are not bound by their own definition. We may hold them accountable, but they, by their own definition, are not bound by the laws of armed conflict. They are not signatories to any of the Geneva Conventions, Geneva or Rome, and uh, they do as they please, um, according to their religious decrees and according to their own uh, ideas of morality. That is one of the biggest challenges we face because we do hold ourselves 
accountable and we do operate and we limit the use of our force according to your very good explanation of the the the, the basic tenets of the laws of armed conflict uh, we apply proportionality we distinguish between who is an enemy and who isn't an enemy and we try to use the least amount of force in order to achieve a legitimate military target uh, we don't go around using excessive force just for the sake of us being able to do so, but we try to use whatever we can, which is just enough to achieve a target. And we do that day by day. But the thing here is that those that we fight against not only aren't bound and uh, operate directly in violation of it, and they target our civilians in almost everything that they do, their rocket fire towards Israel is by definition, totally contrary to the laws of armed conflict because they're aiming their weapons at civilians. There's nothing military that they're aiming at. They're aiming them simply at our cities. So that's a fundamental thing first. And second, I mean, if we look at the attacks on, on October 7th, we saw a premeditated, planned, and with clear command and control structure and orders given by Hamas uh, military commanders. Um, well, the plan was to infiltrate into Israeli communities, kill civilians, abduct civilians, and destroy houses and homes where civilians lived. Of course, in addition to killing soldiers, uh, which is, that that's fair game. Soldiers are fair game. They're supposed to be able to defend themselves, so I don't talk about that. But civilians, women, children, babies, elderly... They are not supposed to be part of, uh, of, uh, of fighting. And in this case, as they have always done, Hamas focused specifically on the civilians. An overwhelming majority of our casualties, more than 1,000 Israeli casualties are civilian. There's more than 300 military casualties, dead soldiers, but there's more than 1,000 killed Israeli civilians, women and children and elderly, and, and of course men as well. Yeah, and the, and the hostages, yeah. Yeah, and the hostages that were abducted, 224 as of now, but that unfortunately is a dynamic number. Uh, you know, we're two and a half weeks after uh, the, uh, the the attack, and we still have not identified all the bodies. We still have more than 100 people missing. We still do activities on the ground in order to find more clues, to find more bodies, and to understand where everybody are. Many bodies have been so badly damaged, burnt, uh, they are burnt beyond recognition. And we are applying all of the most advanced uh, techniques of, of identification, DNA, dental. They are beyond that even. And we have just uh, pieces of, uh, you know, lumps of coal in a, in a human shape. So the whole issue of fighting against a non-state actor, a terrorist organization, which isn't bound by these uh, laws of the armed uh, of armed conflict it's very challenging and another component is of course the whole challenge of the presence of civilians in the battlefield and i know that you've spoken about this and it's really the the core of uh, and i've done an interview with what i consider one of the world's leading experts sahar muhammad ali uh, protecting civilians in urban terrain which i want to get to because she actually developed a commander's guide to it and I think that the IDF not only follows many of those best practices on top of the legal obligations, uh, I think they go above it. But real quick, because I agree with you that no, you know, everything done on October 7th was a war crime, every bit of it. 
um, targeting civilians, um, causing unnecessary uh, suffering, uh, did a long list. So you know, the humanity law of war, uh, the taking all feasible precautions to avoid and minimize incidental life or incidental loss of civilian life when Hamas was targeting civilians. Um, so it's clear that I think that we, I'll agree, and we'll go past this, that the IDF does hold itself to the laws of armed conflict and the world holds the IDF. But, you know, I'm a one-trick pony. Uh, uh, I do urban warfare, right? So I do uh, combat in cities and urban areas. And I don't know if you know this, but the really the statistic of the last decade, if not more than that, is that 90% of casualties in modern wars are civilians because they occur in populated areas. That is a very sad statistic, which most people aren't aware of, but that is unfortunately reality. Yeah. Right. And I've spent a lot of time with the IDF, actually. I'm trying to understand. I have a podcast. It's actually the Israeli approach to combat in, in urban areas. Um, and I study the, and from my assessment, like, you know, understanding the precautions that have to be taken. Um, when fighting in urban areas to distinguish between combatant, non-combatant, to do everything, um, the obligations to prevent, uh, avoid, prevent, minimize loss of civilian life. I think the IDF leads the world. But I wanted to ask you from really from a spokesman person and, not, and clearly with somebody with a lot of experience, what are the steps that the IDF takes to protect civilians in urban combat? Yeah, so that's a big question. I'll try to give a few examples of it. Um, let's start with planning, right? Let's start with collecting of intelligence and classifying military targets. So, first of all, when we analyze the Gaza Strip or any enemy area, but we're focused on the Gaza Strip now, the first one of the first things that we put on all of the layers of our maps is sensitive targets, sensitive not targets but sensitive buildings and locations. Uh, what's deemed sensitive? Schools, uh, hospitals, any medical facility, mosques, churches, um, and anything else where combat isn't supposed to happen. So the first layer is that we put all that on a map and we make sure that anybody that has any firing capability knows that these places are not to be targeted unless something very significant happens and unless the enemy uses them in order to fight, which of course they do. But first of all is awareness. Second, in terms of uh, um, distinguishing, we try to the best of our capabilities to be as as accurate as possible when it comes to the location of enemy combatants and which facilities they use one of the challenges in gaza is that you know even if you'd have the ability to go to gaza and walk around before october the 7th you wouldn't see a single sign in arabic that says this is the hamas headquarters for intel or the R&D center of the Islamic Jihad, or these are the this is the um, second uh, I don't know uh, airborne uh, commando unit. None of that exists. There are no military compounds. There are no it, it, there's no distinction between combatant and non-combatant and civilian and military. It's all embedded. Uh, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad they use civilian infrastructure. Uh, they hide within the civilian population. They use civilian buildings for their military purposes. So 
when people see it on TV, they see a high-rise building or a 10-story building dropped to the ground by a bomb, and they ask themselves, well, why did the Israelis do that? That looks like a domestic building. And then the story behind it is that uh, on five of the 10 floors, Hamas has offices and they conduct operations from there. They collect intelligence, they run operations, they store weapons, whatever, whatever you know, a fighting force does. So what we try to do is to be as specific in our intel as possible so that we can understand where uh, the targets are, despite the fact that they are within civilian infrastructure. Uh, the whole process of targeting, there is, similar to in the US, a legal advisor that is a mandatory part of the approval process of any target that uh, we decide to strike. And he can be overridden by the commander, but his input is mandatory. And I'd say from my experience, if a legal advisor deems a target that is being planned to be attacked uh, not, you know, not in accordance with the laws of armed conflict, I'd say that the, the chances of that target being struck are extremely rare. Uh, and many, many times we call off strikes because of the presence of civilians or because uh, the advisor advises and says, well, you know, we could use different uh, ammunition and perhaps less yield, smaller explosion, etc. Uh, and then uh, combatants, operators have to go and, and find other solutions. Uh, I'll give examples also to, for instance, how we warn civilians. Whenever we strike a target that isn't time sensitive, for instance, an infrastructure target, let's say a place where Hamas stores rockets in the ground floor of a residential building. So we'll call ahead to the tenants in that building using the intel that we have, and we will inform them that they have an hour, which is ample time to get, get basic belongings and get out, uh, until we drop the building. Uh, and we do that continuously, even until today as we speak. So you're still doing it during the during the current operation, which yes. is uh, just frankly, I, I, no other military I know of, to include U.S. military, um, calls and warns a target location before they strike it that hey, you have an hour before you strike this building. Yeah, and there is an obvious we're forfeiting a certain military achievement here because obviously when the civilians uh, get the call, they also inform Hamas, and then Hamas or the enemy has the ability to. Uh, save assets and, and minimize the damage. So it, it comes with a price. Our humanitarian practices, they come with a price. Um, but I think that that's a price that we are willing to live with. Um, civilians get out. Maybe the enemy can save a few assets, but we drop you know the target. And uh, civilians are, sure, they're in inconvenience, no doubt about it, but they're not dead. Uh, we also do roof knocking, which is another form of warning civilians in case that we can't get them on the phone or if it's impossible. Uh, same thing, which is basically a small yield explosive, usually an anti-tank missile that is fired on top of a building, kind of knocking on the roof, indicating that there's going that this house is going to be, or the building is going to be struck. Are you still, do, are you still doing that during this operation? So that's another very unique to the IDF. Again, another precaution that I don't see anywhere else in the world, to include the U.S., is to, to, to knock on the roof of a building you're about to attack. Do you st are you still doing that during this, uh, this war, this named operation? 
Yep, we still we still do, uh, and and we prefer to do that. You know, if we can have a situation where we achieve a military aim with minimum uh, loss of civilian life, then we'll do that. Sure, it's more hassle and it takes longer and it's um, intelligence resource intensive. But at the end of the day, less civilians die, uh, and that's a good thing. We don't want civilians to die, so we do that as well. And uh, we also have other uh, practices, you know, bigger picture here, specifically in this war, we looked at the map. We know where Hamas center of gravity is. It's in Gaza City. They know that we know. So what we said to the uh, civilian population, and this is a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago, we informed them using leaflets, phone calls, uh, media, social media, everything, basically every channel we have so that the message is clear and received by the intended audience that we are going to conduct, I think the wording was, significant military operations in northern Gaza and that civilians should evacuate themselves south of a certain area, a certain uh, geographical um, it's a river basically, so something that's clearly yeah, distinguishable, river, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Gaza River and uh, that they should only come back once we say it's safe. Yeah, I saw those as early as I see. I saw you doing those as early as uh, October eighth. I mean, I, I saw yeah. init- initial calls. So yeah, we did. Which is again the in urban warfare history a very common practice to um, you want to get as many civilians out of the combat area as possible to save human life. Exactly, uh, unless you're in the business of killing civilians, which. There are militaries today that are doing that. Uh, We are not, uh, that is not our practice, that is not our moral compass. And uh, again, we advertised our military intentions, which doesn't make a lot of military sense because now the enemy knows what we're going to do or has a good assessment of what we're going to do. But we did that in order to minimize the risk for civilians. So the the sad thing here again is that, you know, about 1.2 two very sad things. One is that instead of getting praise from uh, UN institutions, humanitarian organizations, and many others of uh, self-appointed defenders of of Gaza, uh, instead of them saying, well, this is really commendable and we appreciate that the IDF exposes its plans in order to minimize the effect on civilians, we get critique and we get and, and, and the word is, and the questions that are fielded against us is, well, this amounts to a, a war crime, that you're moving a population during fighting, to which I answered, how can that be a war crime, that we are telling people where it's safer to be and asking them to get out of the main combat field? I mean, it's absurd. This is the part that frustrates me as kind of a, a warfare guy. Uh, it's very, you know, whether it's the battles against ISIS, uh, the 1.4 million in the city of Mosul, Mawari in the Philippines, uh, 400,000. It's very, that's a very, it's a very standard practice when the defender has taken the urban train and decided that's where they want to die. And they want to take as many civilians from them that the military who is on the attack. But this is the problem is that, like you said, people missing just don't have no clue what a war crime is or what even the laws of war are one thing you point out in the beginning i want to make sure we emphasize is that unlike some interpreters of the of the law of war it is not a war crime to be in the urban area 
right? So that's that's actually a, de- a defensive quality. What's the war crime is actually being in the urban area and using the protected status of protected uh, sites like mosques and yeah. hospitals and schools and protected populations to put your mil- military stuff in it so it won't be um, you re- you restrict the force on the attacker. That's a war crime. Exactly, and unfortunately, Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon, but we won't get into Hezbollah, but Hamas does all of that, all of the above. They use civilians and the proximity and the presence of civilians as human shields. They embed themselves either beneath or next to or within schools, hospitals, mosques, churches, any protected uh, facility they use that in order to either fire rockets from or simply to seek shelter or to conduct operations from and we see that every day um, and you know the whole system Hamas has built a system of tunnels a network of tunnels that spans the entire Gaza Strip all of it is obviously tunnels underground and they have you know a very convenient layer of civilians and civilian buildings between them and uh, uh, and where we are. So whenever we try to strike a military target, for instance, a Hamas tunnel, then there, there there's the chance, the risk of, of striking, inadvertently striking civilians or causing a building to collapse because they have on purpose built their infrastructure underneath the civilians. Yeah, I remember that from uh, the Guardian of the Walls where uh, you struck a, a tunnel complex and it it inadvertently dropped a building that wasn't even in the area because all the tunnels are just like a, a web, a spider web, which is a good uh, uh, underneath all the protected buildings and civilian sites. And you weren't even in that area. Uh, one thing you mentioned as well that I want to highlight, because even as a, a guy who studies this, um, you mentioned about the the lawyers, really the advisors on the law of war um, and the precautions to take uh, to protect civilian populations about being in the targeting process. I remember reading about the 2014 Operation Protective Edge that those advisors were pushed down to the tactical level, what we call a tactical level, like the division headquarters and the targeting. Brigade even. Today we have them at the brigade level, yeah. All of the fire centers and everywhere where you know there's access to weapons that can make significant damage, then there's a legal advisor with the proper training understanding of you know the the different ordnance and uh, intelligence and military training uh, that advises the commanders and is really a part of the planning and execution process yeah that's and again i want to highlight just as a you know a guy who studies it that's unique because of just one a resource right we uh, even in the u.s military we don't have that many lawyers to to really do that or who have been trained like you said in the in that unique uh, law of armed conflict it, it, it takes tr- time to train that force and i remember even in the second battle of fallujah which is not a comparison to this i don't like when people do that but i interviewed one of my bosses who's now a four-star general who was uh going to be the lead tank battalion into the second battle of fallujah and he was asked by the generals what do you need anything you need tell me what you need and one of the things he requested was a lawyer <laughs> yeah because of the complexity of fighting in urban areas where no matter what you do, there will still be a civilian population. Uh, Jonathan, do the, do the IDF soldiers themselves, right? So I kind of get the, you know, the precautions taken before the operation, during the operation, as you strike Hamas targets and each one of those is put through um, necessity, proportionality, all the considerations. 
do the IDF soldiers themselves get a special set of rules of engagement, which are separate? Then they include laws of war, but they can actually be um, they include more commanders guidance. Yeah, they're, they're based. They're based on the law of armed conflict and uh, and and you know our moral code, the the spirit and the values of the IDF, and and but they're also very much based on uh, the law of armed uh, conflict, and uh, that's all of these standard rules of engagement, whether it's you know routine protection of our borders, which is like you know the routine state of affairs where there's the threat of terror attacks or or militants that could attack either civilians or uh, or the military and also now in uh, in war of course they are different the rules of uh, or the, lo- the, the the rules of engagement in war and standard operations they are different and uh, there is like in any military you use more force and there's less restraints when in war because of the threat to your own forces and because of the necessity the military necessity of the situation uh, but even so, Israeli troops, if and when they will maneuver into the Gaza Strip, they will be ordered to distinguish between combatant and non-combatant and to minimize the effect uh, on the non-combatants. They will be told not to target non-combatants and uh, they, will be target, they will be told only to target and use force against combatants. And wherever possible and feasible, they will try to use force in such a way that there's no effect on civilians. It is, as you know, and I think that people who listen to this podcast uh, also know, it is extremely, extremely challenging. I don't think that any military can go into you know a modern city with uh, millions of people in a densely populated urban area, even if many have evacuated because we told them to evacuate. And expect for there not to be a lot of civilian casualties. Unfortunately, if they're there, the sad reality of fighting is that they will be affected. But the guidance to Israeli soldiers, the clear, unequivocal military guidance is to distinguish and to use force according you know, to proportionality, necessity, distinction, so that we kill the bad guys and try not to kill those that aren't combatants and not our enemies. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 I've written about this. I continue to say it. Legal obligations apply to both sides, even if they're not following it. Um, the obligations to protect civilians, get them out of the combat areas. And there's a, and I know the IDF will be doing this. Um, but even as the close fight, if if there is a close fight, there is also a way to to limit the the most amount of the combat in, in a certain area when you know there's a civilian population still left in another area. Uh, I actually try to point people to even um, General MacArthur during World War II who, and, you know, wars in 1968 in the Battle of Way where even in an operation, you'll start off with the operation, okay, don't use any of these weapons. MacArthur didn't want to destroy Manila in retaking it uh, from, and he said, you couldn't use artillery, you can't use air power. But in the close fight, when you have an enemy in a building, you can still be very discriminate. Yeah. But the destruction is is literally um, impossible. That there is no such thing as a, a non-destructive urban battle that I've ever studied in the history of warfare. You can precisely target a single building very accurately. Uh, and, I, and the IDF have some of the best precision-guided missions in the world. But it, when the enemy is in his tunnels coming up in between every building, then you basically precisely, we call it the, I call it the, my friends and I, I call it the precision paradox, 
where like you, you can be discreet and you can be very precise you can follow all the law of war and then even additional but most the destruction it will unfortunately happen yeah it will because uh, you know the, the the urban terrain specifically gaza offers an entrenched enemy lots and lots of tactical advantages and opportunities and the few ways that a maneuvering military has to mitigate those is to use uh, is to use their we- our weapons and those weapons will bring um, adverse effects to the surrounding and there's no no two ways about it of course we'll try to minimize uh, different militaries have totally different approaches you know there's uh, a rolling artillery uh, cover that uh, has been many times you know the russian tactics russian syrian tactics no we, oh yeah yeah before troops advanced there's the rolling barrage of rockets and the artillery and air force just flattening everything just creating a, a moonscape and then uh, don't get me started jonathan on on russian tactics and yeah no, I'm mentioning that because that is not what we do. I mean, we are right. going to... No, like in Mariupol, where Russia bombed a theater known, everybody knew is full of civilians. It had babies or children written on giant letters on the outside of the theater, uh, and Russian d- totally destroyed it. Uh, those are war crimes. Uh, which leads me to my last question, Jonathan. I agree with you, yeah. Uh, and and um, the cause, I mean, literally, the pres- the the... The head of Russia has a warrant out from the only body who can, who is the person that determined war crimes, the International Criminal Court, and Putin has a warrant out from ICC for his actions in Ukraine. You know, the 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 standard has to be the standard, right? These these are the things, the bounds of war. Does the IDF target hospitals? No, we do not. We do not target hospitals. But I'll tell you something. The Shifa hospital in Gaza, which is the main, the biggest and most important hospital, is a Hamas compound. And, uh, you know, I look ahead for whenever we will maneuver. I don't know when this will be broadcast. Maybe once it's broadcast, we will already be maneuvering and we'll be inside Gaza City. Maybe there will already be fighting in that area. Um, But the bottom line is that the Shifa hospital is has been for many years a hamas compound underneath and within and that's kind of a a known secret for anybody who's ever operated in gaza or for journalists who visit there or for international aid workers and humanitarians they know that shifa belongs to hamas and that hamas uses the shifa hospital uh, in order to fight which is a flagrant violation of international law because it's supposed to be a protected facility right uh, yeah so uh, categorically we do not target them but i foresee that uh, hamas is using this and other facilities and that in this war we might you know we might find ourselves in a situation where there is fighting uh, between us and hamas in or around that hospital something that we would definitely want to avoid, uh, mainly because it'll be, of course, used against Israel uh, in a media perspective and in order to apply pressure on Israel and to make allegations of, again, war crimes and all of the other very automatic things that are thrown at Israel, uh, unfounded and uh, not based on any anything really that's happening in reality. But I think that we will we will face that 
Um, and it will be our challenge to get the information out ahead of time and explain to people around the world, anybody who has you know, enough integrity, who's willing to listen, that this is a place that Hamas is abusing. And if we are going after Hamas, wherever they are, if they're in a hospital, we can't allow them to hold on to a place and live there and use that as a refuge for their fighters and then to use it as a staging ground to attack our troops from. So we will be forced to, uh, to deal with them there. And that will be a challenge. Yeah, I know it would be. And I hope that the, uh, I would hope that they would follow the legal obligations from both sides. But I do remind people that ISIS did the same thing. I actually use a case study in the Battle of Mosul 2017, where Iraqi security forces had to assault the main hospital in Mosul. And, and I know this will be shocking to a lot of listeners. They had the, the, the forces that had to cover those used white phosphorus, which is not a war crime. And if anybody does, they're just, again, they're ridiculous because they didn't have any HE smoke. So imagine the perception of that, but they fired white phosphorus into the city to provide smoke because ISIS was holding the hospital as a military target, was shooting out of it, was, and, the, and they did an operation, a battalion operation to assault the hospitals. Unfortunate to watch, but the, this is when you're dealing with a, an organization that doesn't follow any of the rules of, of, of war, but you, the, the other side still has to and will you know, with Western values, democracy, moral code, ethics, yeah, humanity, humanity. Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, we we no matter you know all of our enemies. You look at Hamas, Islamic Jihad in Gaza. You look at Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the other Iranian proxies in Syria and the Iranians themselves. They all are in systemic, basic, and continuous violation of the laws of armed conflict. All of them. And they, they, their whole uh, combat doctrine, <clears throat> sorry, their whole combat doctrine is designed around the abuse of civilians and protected civil, uh, facilities and the attack of our civilians as a primary goal. And what I find absurd is that we are held to an even higher standard than what I think any other military in the world, scrutiny, international involvement and critique of our activities and i think that no other military sustains that kind of of critique i mean imagine if if israel will decide to take the shifa hospital while using uh, phosphorus uh, smoke as a smoke screen which is allowed you're used to you it's nato standard yeah it's nato standard ammunition and and we we can use it uh, imagine imagine the headlines imagine the outfire well, Jonathan, it's a huge honor to talk to you, and I really I understand a little bit how busy you are. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and I really enjoy you know the conversation. It's absolutely uplifting for me as somebody who is deep down a military man, but you know speaking with journalists and with people who make claims that aren't necessarily based in 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 solid reality. To speak with a professional with a professional like you. A world expert on urban warfare uh, that is refreshing, and I really hope that people find it. You know, uh, the perspective that we give here, that I've tried to give, uh, they find it insightful. And um, I thank you for the opportunity to participate. I know it will help many learn and understand. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. 
podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.